have any questions about last week. I'll talk to you about communicable attributes of God. What's the difference between an incommunicable and a communicable attribute? A little test. That's right. That's right. And, and actually, I think Grudem makes kind of the point that there is some aspect of even the incommunicable attributes that we get a slight sharing, a, 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 a bit of sharing, but with communicable, it's more. God shares more. For instance, communicable attribute would be love. And God shares that with us, and we know love because he's loved us. And uh, incommunicable would be something like uh, omniscience, that uh, we obviously can't be all-knowing like God is. But he does share knowledge with us, so there is this sliver, this little slight glimpse of it that we experience. Uh, so in that respect, but there's a big gap there between them. So good, you did listen. And uh, tonight we're going to talk about the Trinity. I tried to give this one away, nobody would take it. <laughs> Tell me what you know about the Trinity. That word is not in the Bible. That's that is true. That's a true statement. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Another true statement. Three persons in one. Three persons in one. Another true statement. Each person is fully God. Each person is fully God. There is one God. One God. Existent, co equal, the Athanasian Creed says this it says, We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. Doctrine of the Trinity, simply stated, is this. God is absolutely and eternally one essence, subsisting in three distinct and ordered persons without division and without replication of the es essence. That's a mouthful, isn't it? God is absolutely and eternally one essence, subsisting in three distinct and ordered persons without division 
and without replication of the essence. So how, is, how can this be? How can God be three persons and yet one God? Did y'all want to read the book? Well, it might be involved in that word mystery, which comes from the Greek word, I believe, mysterion. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, that means basically it hasn't been revealed to us. That's right. What would you say, Audrey? Um, you can't really think of the word person the way that we think of it. I mean, it has to do with the relationship and how each person within the one God fills different roles and distinct roles and functions. So it's about the way that each part of that trinity relates to the universe to us. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point, a good point. That's, that's a, a good observation. Um, Mark talked about roles. We know we have God the Father. We have God the Son. God the Spirit. We know that um, Father tells us something about God without it being Father as we know Father. But it implies something similar to that in a role of leadership. Um, son, while not, while not, uh, you know, created or inferior or less than, but it implies something about the the role uh, adopted and their relationship to one another more than anything else. The relationship is key here. You know, mystery. Mystery is a key word. The Trinity, as a term, is not does not exist in the Bible. So some people take great exception to it because you can't point to a word and say, there it is. But when you study the Scripture, it is there clearly in the Scripture over and over and over again. And, and how all this functions together is an incredible mystery that you know, frankly, we just don't have the mental capacity, the mental power to understand it. And I'm okay with that. I know some people are not because some people want all the answers and they want everything laid out where they can see it and grasp it easily. But I don't have any problem deferring to God's um, infinite wisdom and knowledge and my very limited ability to understand only what He wants me to understand so while the human mind is incapable of grasping the Trinity, that means a lot of times what we do is we resort to negative statements in order to try to get a handle on it. This would be called negative theology, which the fancy term for it is apophatic, apophatic theology. <coughs> In other words, without division, without replication of the essence in this statement that I gave you would be the negative part of that statement. The positive is God is absolutely and eternally one essence subsisting in three distinct and ordered persons without division and without replication of the essence. So we have trouble understanding this unity of three and one. So we describe it as without without separation, without distinction or division. Three, three distinct people, one God without division. 
and yet without replication so that you get into a plurality of gods. And we're going, that's blowing my mind. Well, I think that's probably okay. Um, if we could understand God, he wouldn't really be much of a God, would he? If you use a different word than persons or people, what, what would we use? I, I wouldn't. Hmm? I wouldn't. I think if you take away person and try to use something else like entity <coughs> or being, then you lose the personalness, the relationship aspect of who God is. So I think you have to keep that in there. I don't think you can do anything different. <clears throat> so these negative statements coupled with some positive statements, you know, when we're thinking about defining Trinity, it requires boundaries to prevent people from thinking that the three persons each have either a third of the divine essence, which would be partial, partialism, or a full divine essence that is distinct from the full but identical essences of the other two, tritheism. If the essence were divided among the three persons, none of the persons would be divine. That makes sense? If, if it's just one God and divided into three parts, then each one of them is less than God, right? And if the essence were replicated in three persons, fully God three times, then you've got plural gods, you've got a multiplicity of gods, and so then you've got polytheism, right? So the result would be three gods. Um, let me read something out of Louis Burkhoff. what he says. Scriptural proof for the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is very decidedly a doctrine of revelation. It is true that human reason may suggest some thoughts to substantiate the doctrine and that men have sometimes on purely philosophical grounds abandoned the idea of a bare unity in God and introduced the idea of living movement and self-distinction. And it is also true that a Christian experience would seem to demand some such construction of the doctrine of God. At the same time, it is a doctrine which we would not have known nor have been able to maintain with any degree of confidence on the basis of experience alone and which is brought to our knowledge only by God's special self-revelation. Therefore, it is of the utmost importance that we gather the scriptural proofs for it. So what he's saying is we couldn't arrive at this unless we're told about it by God himself and that occurs in the Bible so all we can know about the Trinity is what scripture itself says and this is true of anything pertaining to God one of our problems is we try to speculate too much about God don't we we try to fill in we try to fill in the gaps and put the cement cement around the bricks and come up with something on our own we try to use a lot of human analogy and things like that to explain things and we really do a disservice to, to God and to ourselves when we do that, particularly with the Trinity. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes, about some of the analogies that human beings use to try to understand the Trinity. We just need to try to understand what the Bible says, no more, no less. Okay? The doctrine of the Trinity, Grudem says, is, is progressively revealed in Scripture. Now, what does that mean? Progressively revealed in Scripture. Over and over again. 
Yeah. Okay. Mark, you started to chime in. You have something with that? Just the fact that as you read through Scripture, you see more and more of the character and nature of God. Yeah. I mean, my my analogies and things are like everybody else's. They're they're very much flawed. But if you start over here, let's say at the very beginning, and you may have this that God reveals about Himself. Okay. And then over here, He adds why, and and here we get the. And on and on, and it's building on itself progressively over the course of the chronology of God's revelation. He's showing us more and more and more of Himself. And at Where, first, it's very subtle, like in the early part of Genesis, He said, Let us make man in our own. That's right. Who's He talking about? It has to be the he's right talking out of the among gate. Yeah. He uses Elohim, which is plural. And it's, it's not plural as in. You know what you would normally use as a plurality it's a very unusual plural form and if you were you know scripture God reveals himself using lots of different names throughout the scripture he begins with Elohim when he gets over and starts talking about uh, some of the judgment you move past Genesis 3 he reveals himself as what Jehovah you know so aspects of who he is is revealed as things pertaining to history with man take on different forms. You know, as God moves in to judge, then he shows himself as Jehovah. Um, he shows himself to uh, Abraham in Genesis 22 as what? El Shaddai, God provides. So he's continually revealing more and more about himself. And and he does this with all the doctrines, but the Trinity is no different. And we get this clue right out of the gate when he says Elohim. And most Bible scholars, I think, would say, this is kind of Jerry's paraphrase of this, that if you were looking for, you know, if you go in to sign a document, you're going to sign your name, right? If God were asked to give his signature, this would be it. This would be his signature. And it's a plural form which speaks or at least implies three persons so that's why it's kind of unique coming right out of the gate let us you know make man you know um, let us do it well, there was nobody else around some say well he was talking you know he's, he's looking at the angels well the angels didn't participate in creation they were a created being uh, nobody else participated in creating except God the Father Son and Holy Spirit subtly it's a good word. So it means that we start out with a partial revelation in the Old Testament, and then we move into a more complete revelation, not, not exhaustive, but a more complete picture begins to show itself in Revelation, right? I mean, in the New Testament, sorry. Let's don't get into Revelation yet. Although the doctrine of the Trinity is not explicitly found in the Old Testament, several passages suggest or even imply that God exists as more than one person. Now, we're going to do some of this where I'm going to have you read some Bible verses and stuff, but early on, I'm going to read through a bunch of verses uh, just in the interest of time to keep us moving quickly. So you're going to have to listen closely, okay? Some of them are going to be repetitive, but we're trying to build something here. So Genesis 1.26 
Paul just referred to. Then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let us make, let us make in our image. Genesis 3, 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Isaiah 6, 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Psalm 45, 6 and 7, your throne, O Lord, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companion. It gets a little bit tedious in there sometimes with, you know, David does some of that in the Psalms, and, uh, you know, it it's not absolutely clear to us but yet the inference is there that we're talking about God and God and even God three persons Hebrews 1 8 says but of the son he says your throne O God is forever and ever the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom Psalm 110 and verse 1 the Lord says to my Lord the Lord says to my Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord says, or God says to God, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In Matthew 22, 41 through 46, now while the, the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, God said to God, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is it his, he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. They said, we don't know. We don't have any answers for that. Point is made. Isaiah 63, 10, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Malachi 3, 1 and 2, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in which you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He's not talking about himself as a person, but he's clearly talking about one just like himself who is coming. Who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand... When he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Hosea 1 7, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save him by the Lord their God. By God their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. This, the word Lord is used in the Old Testament something like more than 6,000 times. And it carries with it the same uh, equivalent essence that the word God does. It's the, um, the same word that is used in the Old Testament in Greek is used in New Testament. You know, when you get to the Greek Bible, the Greek Bible with the Old Testament, New Testament together, 
the same word that's used in the New Testament for, for Lord, kurios, is used in the Old Testament all these thousands of times. So there's no distinction between the two. So when we see the term Lord, as Jesus is often called in the New Testament, it's the same word that's used in the Old Testament speaking to Yahweh. Okay. More complete revelation of the Trinity is in the New Testament. Matthew 3, 16, 17. And when Jesus was baptized, what happened? Immediately he came up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and what happened? The Spirit of God descended like a dove. What else happened? The voice said, This is my son, and you got the Trinity right there together, don't you? How do you explain that? if you don't believe in a trinity. God is speaking. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is there, just been baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends as a dove. You've got, you've got them there. Very clearly, the trinity is in play. Matthew 28, 19. We know this, right? The Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but is the same God who empowers all of them. Again, one verse, the Trinity is on display. 2 Corinthians 3.14 The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul's signing off to the Corinthians. Ephesians 4, 4-6 There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Jude 20 and 21 But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So what began subtly in the Old Testament, inferences to the Holy Spirit, progressively moves to the New Testament, begins to blossom into full glory. And we see very clearly God Father, God Son, God Spirit together. So yes, this term is nowhere to be found in the scripture, but the definition, the description, the essence of it is on full display all through the scripture and particularly as you move into the New Testament. Now, we kind of identified the three statements summarizing the biblical teaching. I'm going to erase this and be clearer with them for our benefit. What are they? As Grudem gives them to you. God is three persons. God is three persons. I wish I could write it. Okay, God is three persons. Let's let's deal with that first, and then we'll add the other two. The fact that God is three persons means that each person of the Trinity is distinct from the other two persons. It 
must be three distinct people, not one essence. Simply, and we'll talk about this a little bit in a minute, but some people believe that God is one essence taking on three forms. What's that? Modalism. Three modes, okay? Um, we, would, we would compare it to, you know, I'm a pastor, I'm a husband, I'm a father. I wear three hats in life. If you make the statement that Jerry's a pastor, Jerry's a husband, Jerry's a father, all three are true. But it's just one person. Okay? I'm not three people. It's three modes. Modalism. If God is not three persons, then that's what we're left with. God is one in three forms. And that's what a lot of people believe. Uh, T.D. Jakes. You know, you know that name? Since we've been picking on Joel Osteen, we'll pick on somebody else. T.D. Jakes. He's a modalist. He believes that, that God is one, three forms. That, that God the Father, Jesus is God become man to be with us, and the Holy Spirit, you know, is just simply God taking on form to be in us, with us. I shouldn't have said that. Now it's on tape. I've got to stop calling names, don't I? John 1, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. With clearly signifies two people, right? Two individuals, two distinct persons. Be with somebody. And yet, the Word was God. So here again, you have this, this picture unfolding. He was in the beginning with God. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Hebrews 7, 25, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always seeks or lives to make intercession for them. John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, this is Jesus speaking, He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Romans 8, 27, And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So, the fact that God is three persons means that each person of the Trinity is distinct from the other two. <coughs> also, the Holy Spirit is a distinct person and not just the power of God. Some people treat God as some sort of um, force, you know, a power. Uh, but that doesn't work. You know, you can't make that work with some of the passages. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, that we read a few moments ago, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the hope that belongs to your call, the, the one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The Father, uh, John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, not but the helper, the power, whom the Father will send in my name. That doesn't work, does it? But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you remembrance all that I've said. John 15, 26, but when the Helper comes, not when the power comes, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the 
power of truth or spirit of truth. It's got to be a person there. Who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. So the Holy Spirit is a distinct person, not some force, not some power. <clears throat> Passages that would not make sense, a couple of those that wouldn't make sense, uh, a couple more anyway. Luke 4.14 said Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So if, if you're talking about the Holy Spirit being a power, you would say, and Jesus returned in the power of the power to Galilee. That doesn't make sense, does it? He returned in the power of the Spirit in, to Galilee and report about Him went out through all the countryside. So, uh, each person is fully God is the second statement. All the attributes without any variation. Is that fair? No variation. So whatever the Father is, the Son is every bit that. Whatever the Son is, whatever the Father is, the Holy Spirit is every bit that. But if you think about it, in our minds, we don't really think about it that way, do we? We, we run the danger. We run the danger of lessening. And this is part of the problem. This is what John's dealing with. You know, we've been preaching through John. One of the things we're dealing with is that uh, establishing the full deity of Christ, the full deity of Jesus. That's what John's message is. He is the Son of God. He is fully God, fully divine every, in every way. If he's anything less than that, we got problems, don't we? We got problems. Let me show you something. Look in Philippians chapter 2. Getting ahead of myself. Philippians chapter 2, um, verse 7. Somebody have it? When emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Back up to verse 6. Six. Who also he existed in the form of God. Did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself in the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So, Paul is writing to Philippians, he's talking about Jesus. And he says, being fully the same as God, being God, did not consider that to be something to grasp, to be, to be grasped or to be held on to. But he emptied, is the word he uses. Now, does that mean when Jesus came into the world that he stopped being God or that he became less God? No. All right. That, that's not a complete answer. He was fully God and fully man. Fully God, fully man. Well, but he's emptied says he emptied. He didn't consider it something, it wasn't the right thing for him to grasp and to hold on to being God, to being equal to God, so he emptied himself. What does that mean? He 
would be too powerful. You'd have, you'd just be too. Yeah, you're tracking. He became man. He became man. But a lot of people will look at that and go, well, he, he took off his deity. He took off his attributes of deity and he laid them aside in order to become a man, in order to, to act like a man and do all the things that a man did and to ultimately die. Is that what it means? It can't mean that because if he did, if he took off his full deity, if he took off his righteousness, his holiness, and left those things in the closet in heaven when he came down here, then he's less than God. And when he went to the cross and died, he's still less than God. He's not the perfect sacrifice to atone for all sin for all time. He's a man just like us. And so he's insufficient as our sacrifice, okay? What it means is that he willingly submitted, subjected the operation, the authority over his attributes to the Father. He laid aside his privileges. That's right. He put off his privilege. He, he took his privilege as God and put it in the hands of the Father and said, I will, I'm not going to be less than God. I'm not taking off any of my essence. I'm not becoming not God or less than God. But I'm not going to operate as God only when you lead me, cause me to do this, will I operate and show my deity. Make sense? So he didn't empty himself as pouring it out. He gave up the authority, the command of his attributes to the Father. Does that help? He willingly set aside his privilege. Well, certain attributes he obviously set aside. He, he put was it not in. omnipresent. He was not omnipotent, or he didn't display those attributes. Could he have? Yes. Well, what do you what do you do when Nathaniel shows up and he says, "Ah, Nathaniel, in whom one there is no uh, 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 is it Gal." Uh, Nazarene uh, or Galilean in whom there's no guile. Uh, and he said, how, how do you know that? And he said, I saw you before. So he, he had the capabilities, you know. When he went to the, uh, the tomb where Lazarus is in there and he's getting ready to call Lazarus up from the grave, which is the greatest power from our estimation that is possible is the power over death, right? Death is our greatest enemy. And before he calls him forth, he prays to the Father and he said, you know, I'm praying so that everyone around here will know what, why this is going on, why I'm doing this. I don't have to pray in order for this to happen, but I'm doing this so everybody will understand why we're doing it. Lazarus, come out. You know, he, he came staggering out, you know, release him and let him go. He, he still has all of the power and the attributes and the abilities the capabilities of being God. He has to in order to be the, the sufficient atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sin. He has to be fully God. He can't be anything less than fully God. Yes? 
you know, two good examples would be when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas betrayed him and all the people fell down. They were struck. They fell down on the ground before him and then he put the uh, slave, I think it was, the servant's ear back on his head. Yeah, yeah. So he, he still he had those abilities. He was able to demonstrate his power. He just did it when he knew it was necessary. Right. He, he subjected himself to the Father's plans. He said, I always live to do that which pleases my Father. I'm here to do the Father's will. That's my sustenance. So he still had those abilities, that capability in him, but God is, the God the Father is the one that led him to exercise those capabilities if and when he wanted to. That's how he could die on the cross for us. So he didn't empty. He's never less than God. Okay. Um, the Son is fully God. I think we've, we've beat that to death, right? Not to death, but we've beat it enough. You want to beat it some more? I can. Um, Colossians 2.9 says, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The Holy Spirit is also fully God. Matthew 28.19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Acts 5, 3, 4, Ananias and Sapphira, their, their little shenanigans to sell property and then, you know, make a name for themselves among other believers that people go, oh, they sold their property and they're bringing all this money in. How wonderful they are. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Clearly equating him with God. For yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? But after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Why have you lied to the Spirit? Why did why Satan led you to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then at the end he says, you've not lied to man, but to God. This is serious business. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? There is one God. One God. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your might. <clears throat> 1 Kings 8.60 That all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Isaiah 45.5 and 6.21.22 I'm the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none besides me. I'm the Lord and there is no other. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. 2 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, we've kind of touched on this. These simplistic, there, there are those that have uh, introduced simplistic solutions that try to deny one strand of this, this kind of trifecta of statements. 
uh, to take one off. And every time you do, then it, it totally leads to a, a distortion of who God is. For instance, if you take off the first one and you just have the, these two statements, each person is fully God, there's one God. Each person is fully God, there's one God, but not three distinct persons. What do you have left? We simply have God functioning in three different forms. We have modalism, right? <clears throat> if we deny the second one, and we're left with one God and three distinct persons, we're left with the possibility that each person is, is fully God. That not each person is fully God. Subordinate or created parts of God. In other words, this is where you get, you get uh, Jesus not being fully God. Uh, who's guilty of that? Who, who practices that? Jehovah's Witnesses? Mormons? They'll tell you they don't, but they do. I mean, they, they equate Jesus and Lucifer as being brothers, okay? And not really the Son of God. So they have a diminished view of Jesus, diminished view of the Spirit. God the Father, they put up here. And they diminish the other two roles. If you deny the third statement, there is one God, and you just have God as three persons, each person is fully God, then you have polytheism, you have uh, um, uh, tritheism, you have three gods and, and not one God. So you're not a, no longer a, a monotheist, right? Now we talked a little bit, I mentioned uh, analogies. People try to explain the Trinity by analogy. What's, a, what's an analogy you've heard somebody use to explain the Trinity? Water, ice, and steam. That's probably the most famous, isn't it? Water, water ice, steam. Is there a problem with that analogy? Can't all be at the same time can't all be at the same time. Uh, they take on different properties, different characteristics, don't they? So it's not a good analogy. Uh, it can be water, but you can't be water, ice, and steam at the same time. It doesn't work. Um, tree. Some people have used the tree. You know, you got roots, trunk, branches. Same problem. You got parts, but not any one part is the full tree. What'd you say? Egg, and I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> well, maybe this one works then. <laughs> it's it a does. mystery. It doesn't work. I've, I've heard people use cherry pie. You know, they say, well, you take out a piece of cherry pie, you got cherry pie, you still got cherry pie, and I'm going, what? <laughs> um, none of them work. They're all imperfect because this is, inexplicable it's it's not understandable on human level there's no way we can get our minds around it so anything we do comes up short and the problem with the analogies is that they they lend themselves to us taking on different understandings of the Trinity that are not accurate you know interjecting our own ideas and therefore making the Trinity mean something that it doesn't mean and it's too important for us to do that with so we need to kind of stay away from them. Okay. 
So analogies of the of the uh, Trinity, bad, just leave them alone, ignore them. Uh, let's see. <coughs> We've touched on modalism. Uh, Arianism denies the full deity of the Son and the Holy Spirit, which is what we have with uh, the Jehovah's Witness or, or the uh, Mormons. Uh, Arianism, Arianism, that... Uh, was started by Alexandrian uh, Bishop Arius, who taught that God the Son was created, and they will they primarily use the terminology in the Scripture. Uh, was it John three sixteen that talks about Jesus being the only begotten Son of God? And so they'll focus on that word begotten that's used in other places as well, as uh, meaning created. That He created. He had a beginning, uh, and that's not what it means. That's not what it means. Begotten means generated from but not necessarily in the way of being created so we don't really even have a way to define begotten it's a it's a mysterious word uh, that we have in our scripture just like with the holy spirit in uh was it peter where he talks about the uh, the holy spirit uh or no it's john john 15 where Jesus is talking about the Spirit coming, and he says, uh, the Spirit proceedeth from the Father. Again, same kind of thing. You know, it's not a creation. It's not a statement of creation. It's a statement of being generated by coming, you know, being sent. You know? Okay, so Arianism... Uh, and they'll use texts like Colossians 1.15. Colossians 1.15 says Jesus is called the firstborn of all creation. So they'll take that and, and misuse it. They'll twist it and misuse it. He's firstborn of all creation. So he was born. He had a beginning. He was begotten. And that's how they get there. Again, that's not what that's talking about. It's talking about firstborn as in privileges. That he is the firstborn, meaning he is the crown of creation. He is the crown over creation. He is the Father's um, chosen one, the exalted one, and uh, not talking about being created. He enjoys the rights of the firstborn. Okay, subordinationism. Um, and you know, and the, the truth is that, uh, I've got to give you a little bit, there's two things that we've covered so far that Grudem, I don't agree with Grudem on, that are a little bit off. Uh, not a little bit. In some cases, maybe too much off. Um, we didn't really finish up the incommunicable attributes. But one of those, Grudem talks about impassibility. The impassibility of God, which means God does have, not have passion. Okay? Um, and, and Grudem disagrees with that. And, and it's, a, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a little bit of a bear to get our, our minds around. When he's talking about impassibility, about he says God does have passion, that we see God have passion, that he gets angry and he does those, those kind of things. But where I think that, that he's not, you know, when you think about the unchangeableness of God, that he's immutable, he doesn't change. So he doesn't have emotions like we have emotions in that he reacts to things, okay? He doesn't do something. He's not controlled by stuff around him or by our actions, so he doesn't react to that. It, 
he expresses things that are fully within his will. You know, he loves. He does have joy and things of that nature, but they're a part of who he is, his unchanging character. So he does have passions, but they're, they're unchanging passions, and they're not things that take him by surprise. You know, he's never surprised by something and goes, oh, wow, I can't believe that. He never does that. You know, God always knows, and he's always factored in, and it is what he is, and he displays it as a part of his will and purpose. So it's not like our passion. So there's a distinction to be made there. The other one is that uh, Grudem also comes down on the side of using marriage and the relationship between a husband and wife as an, uh, an analogy, of a, as a picture of the Trinity. Uh, and I think, I think he's mistaken on this. He, he talks about the wife being uh, subordinate to the husband and, you know, that the husband is given the, uh, the role of being the uh, leader in the home. And, and I just think he gets off track there, and it, it's not a helpful analogy that Christ is not subordinate from eternity past. Christ subordinated himself when he came into this world by his power, by entrusting the operation of his power to the Father. But he is not subordinate in essence or in perpetuity. Okay? So if you read that in there, if you read, if you read his take on those things, then you know, please understand that I'm, I'm not in agreement with that, and I don't know, Luke and I have talked about it, he's not either, and uh, uh, a lot of, uh, Grudem, you know, every once in a while he'll throw you one of those clinkers in the mix. And, and you know, and, to, and, and not to throw him under the bus, he would say, you know, this is my understanding at this time. This is what I've, and, and he's a very intelligent guy and he's done a lot of research and I have immense respect for him, but I just think he's wrong. You know, we're all fallible. You know, he might actually find something I'm wrong about, but I, I kind of mm. doubt it. <laughs> highly unlikely. It's highly unlikely. Is he read your systematic theology? I, I don't know, but hey, I'm going to see that he does. Uh, where does the, you know, my understanding is that Christ, during his earthly life, was submissive to the Father's will. Right. So there is some subordination there. Right. And, and, okay. Well, I don't need to say anymore. Right. But it, I'd have to go in and read exactly what it is he says there, but his, his analogy goes a little bit too far, I think. But that's because he... <laughs> Set it aside himself, not because he became something different. Right. But he never, in John, it's pretty clear that Jesus said he, he never did anything that he didn't see the Father doing. Or right. The Father right. told him to do. The analogy is not helpful for a lot of reasons because he builds a case of uh, a subordination that is eternal, mm -hmm. which I don't think is accurate. But you also don't have, you don't have a role for the Holy Spirit. You know, he, he uses children born into the marriage as, like, you know, it's not a good analogy. Yeah. It's just not a helpful analogy. Well, don't you think we, we being Christians and, and more directly me being Bob, that our view of the Trinity is somewhat modal in order to try and understand it? Because we view, even though we know that uh, there's one God, 
Yes, I mean, well, I, we think about God the Father as an, an entity, and we think about the Son, Christ, as one, and the Spirit as another, although they are one and the same. I, it, it's difficult. I mean, you can't. Sure, it is. And that's why I'm stressing that this is what we know. Yeah. These three things right here are what the Scripture teaches that we absolutely know. We only know what we know. My wife got frustrated with me the other day because, you know, I was doing that with her. She said, but what about, don't you, don't you? I said, we only know what we know. You know, I'm not going to speculate. We do that a lot, and our speculation becomes our doctrine if we're not careful. And this is what we know. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. We know those three things. And you go, I can't reconcile that. I know. It's a mystery. But that's what we know. That's what God has said. From his perspective, it makes perfect sense. From our perspective, we're going, I don't get it. But you're saying you grew them as supporting subordinationism? But unless I'm reading, and maybe he said it's different somewhere else. In 114, he said he calls it a false doctrine. Subordination is, but I'm saying he uses the analogy of a husband and wife, gotcha. and, and his use of that is not a healthy, gotcha. not a healthy thing. I was just going to say that the Bible uses <clears throat> terms to help us begin to try to comprehend that which is incomprehensible. So we can relate to Father, Son, maybe Spirit in the sense of the soul and spirit, but it's just to help us, I think, understand. Sure, there's some of that, and Luke and I have had this argument about uh, the impassibility, is because he's he would his first response is to go with absolute unchangeableness of God and God has no passion. I said, you can't, I don't think you can say that. And he said, well, why not? You know, he, said, he says all these, all these descriptions of God are aphorisms. Uh, uh, you know, they're using human, human uh, things that we know to communicate to us. And I said, but why does God do that? You know, why didn't he tell us something that's completely foreign? Why does, he, why does he do that? He's relating to us. He gave us emotion. He gave us these things. And we have to acknowledge that. And I said also, uh, I started using Jesus. I said, what about Jesus? Uh, clearly had passion. He said, yeah, but he was a human being. I said, ah, but Hebrews 1 said he is the exact representation. He is the exact same model as the Father. So you can't use that either. You know? And so he went, hmm. <laughs> so... We only know what we know. And we start trying to make it fit our logic, and that's where we get off track. Okay. Nathaniel, Jesus said, you have, you have seen me and you've seen the Father. No, they, they he said, said that to Thomas. Thomas, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thomas to the said, disciples. show the Father. Show said, us the Father. Lord, we don't know where you're going. Show us the Father. We'll, yeah. we'll come. And he said, you've seen me, you've seen, seen the Father. Me. <clears throat> All right, so uh, adoptionism is the view that Jesus lived as an ordinary man until his <laughs> baptism and that God adopted him and made him divine at that time. Subordinationism held that the Son was eternal and divine, not created, but still not equal to the Father, somewhat subordinated to him. And you could look again at Philippians 2 7 there. Uh, the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity. Full deity of Jesus and the Holy Spirit is critical. I mentioned earlier about the atonement. It comes unraveled if Jesus is not fully God. Justification by faith alone is at stake without full deity of the Son. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. If Jesus is not fully God, can we really worship Him? Should we? Why would we? 
Would we pray to him if he's not fully God? Um, if, if Jesus is a creature, then salvation can be attributed to a creature and not God. You see how it begins to unravel. Um, the independence of God is at stake. Then God, if, if Jesus is a creature and, and the, um, God, in order to show his love, had to be toward the creature Jesus, then he's dependent upon his own creation for something. And he's not independent any longer. So there's problems with each of these without the full deity of Jesus. Uh, uh, tritheism denies that there's only one God. We've touched on that. So what are the distinctions between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? The persons of the Trinity have different primary functions in relating to the world, the economy of the Trinity, things such as creation, redemption. Um, you know, God spoke creation. The Spirit hovered and brought things to pass. Jesus did the work of atonement. The Holy Spirit brings the work to bear upon the sinner through conviction and regeneration. So the, the Holy Spirit works all three fully God, but they do work in different roles, complementary roles to one another. Um, the persons of the Trinity eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the relationship between the three persons and the being of God. God's being is not divided into three equal parts. The personal distinctions in the Trinity are not something added onto God's real being. The persons of the Trinity are not just three different ways of looking at the same being. There are three distinct persons, and the being of each person is equal to the whole being of God. Can we understand the doctrine of the Trinity? No. No. We know what we know. And that's all we know. Questions? Does, does, he, uh, does he touch on the fact that God is completely satisfied in himself? Uh, God doesn't need yes. anything. I mean, that was probably in the communicable attributes, if I, or incommunicable attributes, if I'm, if I'm right. You know, where he he is uh, independent. You know, he he can't need any, anything else or anyone else. But if he is only one and not three persons, if there's not God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that means there's God. He's one and only one. Then. <coughs> When you go back before he, he uh, in eternity past, then God's attributes of love, what do you do with that? <clears throat> How can he love if there's no recipient to love? Mm. So that means he had to create something to love, which makes him dependent upon what he created, so he's not, he's not dependent anymore. The Trinity is in the books. End 